From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The governor is our guest as ballots hit the mail in an election that could reshape property taxes for a decade. The Blue Book Voter Guide dedicates 13 pages to explaining Prop HH. Yes, property tax is complicated. There's over 2,000 property tax collecting districts in the state. Also, a listener asks Governor Jared Polis about homelessness. Then filmmaker Ken Burns on his new documentary, The American Buffalo, a tale of near extinction and of genocide. If you kill the buffalo, you also kill the Native Americans. Theodore Roosevelt, before he's president, says, yeah, it's kind of sad that we're going to lose the buffalo, but it's key to our handling of the Indian problem and the advancement of white civilization. I donated my beat-up car to Colorado Public Radio. It made no more sense to repair it again. I didn't think I'd get anything for it on the market, so I was very impressed when I found out the amount it received at auction. CPR's vehicle donation program gets several calls a day from donors wondering if non-runners are accepted. The answer is yes. Totaled or non-working cars sell at auction, and the proceeds support CPR. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Governor Jared Polis is our guest just before ballots arrive in your mailbox. The key measure to decide Proposition HH, which would rewrite the state's tax system for at least a decade, particularly property taxes, which are heading skyward. Governor, thanks for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Ryan. HH would lower property tax rates to blunt what would otherwise be steep increases. The trade-off is the measure would raise state spending limits under the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. That cuts Tabor refunds significantly over time and could send more money to schools than they'd be losing. If the goal is to reduce property taxes, why not just lower the rate? I'm for all of the above. So um, absolutely, lower the rate. There's been some jurisdictions like Colorado Mountain College that have. But we need some kind of statewide property tax cut. And this one, Prop HH, is about $550 for an average home. Obviously, some people will have their $700, some will be $400. But the average is about $550 for the following year after the taper surplus would be reduced by about $46. So it's a good deal and also puts a mechanism in place called Truth in Taxation to cap property tax increases going forward at the rate of inflation, requiring a a vote of the governing board if they want to waive that. So it puts a default in place. Utah has this. It's been very effective in keeping property tax values down over time. So I really charge the legislature doing three things with this. Immediate relief for homeowners, number one. Number two, address the inequities of the Gallagher Amendment, which was repealed, which effectively made the rate that small businesses pay much higher. And so this provides additional relief to businesses, which will lead to higher salaries, more employment. And then finally, provide a mechanism to prevent property tax rates from going up too much in the future. And that's the truth in taxation. So it's a good package. It not only will save people money next year, uh, but it'll save people money in the long run. Package is the right word. I, I read the Blue Book Voter Guide. Uh, on the bus this morning, 13 pages of analysis, Governor, seven charts, a QR code that links to an online calculator. Uh, Even in high turnout years, there's a challenge of getting people to fill in single bubbles beside candidate names. 
Is this good governance to ask all of that of a voter? You know, this is a Prop HH is one of those initiatives that the more you learn about it, the more you, you like it. Because, yes, property tax is complicated. There's over 2,000 property tax collecting districts in the state. Not only every school district, but fire districts, library districts. So when you're making a policy that encompasses and addresses over 2,000 districts, of course, it needs to be thoughtful and uh, it needs to make sure we can protect ourselves from fire. We fund our schools. We provide property tax relief everywhere. Some of that is then backfilled by the state out of surplus funds. So yes, um, you know, a simple solution isn't always the best solution. And the more people learn about HH and that the fact that it'll keep property taxes low, the more they like it. Well, the more these two local government lobbying groups read it, the less they like it. That's the Special District Association and the Colorado Municipal League. They oppose HH. And these are groups whose residents presumably would benefit from lower property tax rates. Uh, CML says it's opposed because of the unnecessary constraints on municipal authority and the restriction of municipal tax revenue. Well, yeah, of course. Cities want to tax you as much as they can, and we're saying that they can't. So, I mean, it shouldn't surprise anybody that your city, not that they necessarily are going to raise your taxes, but they want the right to raise your taxes. And yes, we're, we're putting some encumbrances on that because we want to keep property taxes low for everybody. The measure does dedicate a maximum of $20 million a year to renter relief. Now, that's compared to hundreds of millions or billions for property owner relief. We speak as rents and evictions are rising fast in many communities. Why should renters vote for this when it seems like there's not much in it for them and they're going to see their Tabor refunds shrink? In many ways, renters have the most at stake because if you're a landlord and your property tax bill increases 40%, you pass that along to your renters. I've never met the landlord that out of the goodness of their heart just absorbs their, their property tax increase. That's passed along. Uh, in commercial leases, it's passed along formally. So, I mean, if you're a small store on Main Street and the property tax of the owner goes up as part of your lease, it's passed directly along to you. And that's what we face if Prop HH doesn't pass. $20 million a year for renter relief, though. is a drop in the bucket when you compare it against the property owner relief, no? Well, I would add that we're very interested in doing more for lower income families on housing stability. So I'll just add as an example... We funded the child tax credit for the first time in Colorado history. We increased the earned income tax credit. And of course, for low-income Coloradans, our number one expense is rent. A verdict will come sometime soon in the first of three trials concerning the death of Elijah McClain in police custody in Aurora in 2019. After enormous public pressure, you directed the state attorney general to reopen the case. How closely, Governor, have you followed this trial in Adams County of two officers? So I, I follow it in the paper, but I mean, it's firmly in the judicial side. I mean, this is not something that should have any influence from, you know, elected officials, governor, state senator. I um, wanted to make sure a second set of eyes looked at it. The attorney general did. Charges were brought. Uh, it's now being played out in a courtroom appropriately so, and, and a verdict will be rendered. Let's talk about guns. A new law took effect October 1st requiring a three-day waiting period on gun purchases. Rocky Mountain gun owners immediately sued, saying three days is arbitrary and that the Second Amendment implies the right to possess arms that people have acquired. That law remains in effect, at least until a hearing later this month. When you signed this bill, did some part of you wonder whether it would be overturned by the courts? 
So, you know, gun safety is part of a comprehensive approach we have to make Colorado one of the 10 safest states. That's our goal, significantly reducing the crime weight, improving public safety. We funded recruitment and retention of law enforcement, co-response models, youth interventions. We have a number of initiatives around reducing recidivism, meaning when people are released from prison, programs to reduce the likelihood they'll commit a crime again. Of course, gun safety is part of that. In particular, around the waiting period, there's de- many states have this, even red states like Florida, for example, is a waiting period, Illinois, California, many of them had them for decades. This can help reduce crimes of passion and suicides uh, without inconveniencing in a significant way gun owners, because most people are going to plan ahead if they're going to go hunting or recreational shooting uh, more than three days. Uh, and of course, it makes sure that on the spur of the moment, if you show up at a gun store and say, I, I need a gun right now, um, you know, that there's a, a chance to cool down there and, and a chance to do the background check, which uh, usually takes hours, but there have been times where it's taken two or three days as well when there's a backlog. But that assumes that the courts let it stand. Oh, yeah. No, the, no. there's an active discussion in the courts. Uh, you, you, and you mentioned the age. We have another. We, we, we Previously, in Colorado, you had to be 18 to buy a rifle, uh, 21 to buy a pistol. We just said, hey, 21 for everything. That one has been stayed in the courts as well. Indeed. Absolutely. Every, and I would say we are interested in doing things that are defensible that we have a strong likelihood of succeeding in defending. Nothing is ever uh, certain, but I think that certainly around the three-day waiting period and the age 21 requirement, uh, we have a reasonable chance of succeeding in the courts and a very strong defense that we're working with Attorney General Phil Weiser to mount. A reasonable chance. You don't feel hamstrung then? Well, you never know, uh, Ryan, right? So, I mean, I I feel that when you're coming up with a gun safety law, you want to make sure it's defensible and not just symbolic. If symbolic and you know you're going to lose, what's the point of doing it? The state is finally acknowledging its role in a really awful chapter when so-called boarding schools tried to strip the identities and cultures of indigenous children. This was around the turn of the 20th century. Colorado state archaeologists put out a report after a year-long investigation And, uh, Governor, we asked the president of the Navajo Nation, Boo Nigren, if he'd like an apology from the state, since so many Navajo children wound up in these institutions in Colorado. I think if they're willing to, our our nation and our people would really appreciate it. It just acknowledges the history. They kind of own the scenario and then move on from there. So I think an apology would be great. If they they could do it, I'm not going to pressure people to issue an apology. Have you thought of a formal apology like the one the state finally issued for the Sand Creek Massacre in 2014? I just last week met with uh, the two land-based tribes in Colorado, the Ute Southern Ute and the Ute Mountain Ute. It was on the eve of the publishing of the report. We discussed that with them. I also, along with Lieutenant Governor Diane Primavera, paid a private tribute to um, victims at one of the grave sites that uh, was near one of the schools. There were many students that were casualties, some of disease, some of uh, perhaps maltreatment. I mean, we're still investigating all of this as well. I would say that the initial report uh, is a starting point, not an ending point. Yes, it's a good, thoughtful report, but it raises a lot more questions that still need answers about exactly what happened during this dark era. I would also say that we're very interested in working with the tribes to rebuild a strong 
future that supports their culture moving forward. And one of the most exciting things I got to do when I was visiting is visited the Quayagot Academy, which is a charter school run by the tribe that teaches the Ute language as part of their curriculum, publicly funded by the state of Colorado, as charter schools are through the Charter School Institute. Uh, We also help them find some state grants to set it up. So I think making it up indeed and saying not only now is the federal government not actively trying to wipe out the language as it did perhaps for your grandparents' generation of the kids there, but we are now fully supporting a public school that spends part of the day teaching Ute language heritage and culture and language to the next generation of Utes. That doesn't answer the question about a formal apology. Well, I think what's, what's most important is what's being done. I mean, the fact that there is now a Quiagot State of Colorado-funded school that is helping kids learn you, an opportunity that maybe many of their parents or grandparents might not have had, is addressing some of the dark history where the federal government made a deliberate effort to wipe out these languages and cultures. And I'll ask just one more time. I think I hear you saying, you know, what I have, I think my father uses the phrase, a living amends. You make a living amends to to Well, that's what's most important at the end of the day, yes. It's about how you can address, first of all, a historical reckoning, meaning we did the report, there's more work to be done. Uh, We don't, identifying victims in cemeteries, uh, identifying patterns of abuse, making sure we have a clear-eyed history of what occurred, and that work has begun. The report is a big step forward. There's more work to do. Uh, But secondly, how can we make sure that we celebrate our indigenous cultures going forward, not just with words, but in the form of, in this case, again, a publicly funded school run by members of the tribe. As more is uncovered, as the understanding is deepened, do you think that process ends with a formal apology? Is it premature? Is that what you're saying? Well, I think it's a question of apology from who and what it means. Uh, the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs obviously has a lot of culpability. I think additional work uh, around what is the culpability around officials in Colorado, whether they were state commissioners, whether they were governors. So, you know, again, I I think the work around finding responsible parties and making sure that everybody in office today completely disavows uh, the immoral work of the past is critical. But, you know, as you said, it's, it's also about making amends. We asked listeners to suggest questions for you, and Susan Lake asks what you can do about homelessness, which is an issue statewide. In Metro Denver specifically, though, it's up 33% over the last year, as many as 28,000 people without a roof over their heads over the course of a year. Does the state have a more immediate role than reshaping zoning and housing and land use policies, as you've tried to do unsuccessfully. Yeah, and and hopefully with more success in the future. But, uh, you know, so cities, obviously, we have many cities that are dealing with homelessness, uh, Denver or Colorado Springs, Boulder, but also, you know, Thornton, Westminster, really every major city is dealing with this issue in different ways. 
And and the state does not have authority, um, obviously, to act in, the, in in a city with regard to what their policies are. But we do have a responsibility and an opportunity to help, and that's exactly what we've done. Uh, we've most recently invested twelve and a half million in American Rescue Act funding, a federal origin of funds. We've invested them um, to the specifications of several cities. Uh, $24 million uh, with supportive services for a regional navigation campus. Uh, so we are... You What's know, a regional navigation campus? So effectively campus? to help people who are homeless get the behavioral health they need, get a job, um, those those kinds of assistances. So again, the state doesn't run these, nor am I advocating that we should, but we should help local governments fund and support uh, the work they need to reduce homelessness. You appeared at an event sponsored by the Colorado Sun news site, and reporter Jesse Paul asked you, what would make Colorado better? And you said, for one thing, people should be safer. And you went on to say, quoting here, these encampments and drug paraphernalia should not be a part of a safer Colorado. Will you elaborate on that for me and then tell us what you see as your role specifically? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that's obvious that, you know, drug paraphernalia on the street represents a danger, especially for kids who might not know what it is. I would say that uh, when we look at making Colorado one of the 10 safest states, I think that was uh, the section of remarks you drew from. I've expressed that goal publicly. We want to make Colorado one of the 10 safest states. At the time, it was in five years. Now we have four years. Um, We are in the middle of the pack, and that's not good enough. So that means property crime. Um, violent crime we need to reduce. There's no silver bullet. It's comprehensive solutions. So what we've talked about and continue to talk about is everything from grants to local law enforcement for recruitment and retention of law enforcement, supporting co-response models, which means a behavioral health specialist should show up rather than a cop if that's what the response needs, youth intervention programs, uh, reducing gun violence, reducing domestic violence, Uh, So it's really a a thoughtful, data-driven, comprehensive approach. We're always focused on what has worked in other places. How can we apply that in Colorado to make Colorado safer? Is there a conflation there of the homeless issue and public safety? Uh, Well, as as I said in that remark that you quoted, um, obviously things like drug paraphernalia can be dangerous on the streets. Um, People that are having behavioral health issues can also um, have periods of time where they can be a danger to themselves or others and might need to have a medical intervention or behavioral health intervention. So it's a, you know, public safety is a very broad topic. Auto theft, drugs, certainly part of it, domestic violence, gun violence, school safety, which we increase funding for school safety. So there's not any one piece to it. And, and we're interested in tackling all those drivers that can improve public safety in Colorado. Let me pick up on a turn of phrase you used, that you hope to have more success in the future. And you were speaking of the state playing a greater role in local land use decisions. So are you teeing up uh, a similar fight or a similar campaign for the next session? Well, first of all, it's not exactly how I frame it. I don't think the state should play a bigger role. I think that homeowners and property owners should be able to play uh, a, a larger role unfettered by local regulations that prevent housing, that are anti-housing, that uh, are, are exclusionary. Uh, and uh, we need to figure this out for our state. The average home price uh, in the Denver metro area is close to $600,000. But there's a major asterisk on that. That $600,000 today 
is about 40% more expensive than $600,000 two years ago because of mortgage rates and interest rates. And that's how people experience home prices. It's the monthly mortgage rate you pay. Obviously, if you're paying rent, it's still a function of somebody's mortgage if they have a mortgage on the property. Um, so we need to remove artificial constraints on supply. We've really been listening across the state and Grand Junction and Pueblo, Fort Collins. Really, everywhere I go, housing is at the top of the agenda, and it's the biggest frustration Coloradans have. And we'll be very excited to work with the legislature, work with local leaders uh, to really uh, establish a solution that works for Colorado to allow for more housing now for all budgets. You are picking this fight back up in the next session. Well, I, I hope it's a kumbaya rather than a fight, Ryan. But, um, you know, we're always willing to have a fight if people want to fight us. But it's much better if we come together and say, let's do something about how high, high housing costs in Colorado and let's provide more low-cost homes. And what is a low-cost home? Multifamily. Accessory dwelling units like a grandmother's flat, duplexes, quadplexes, these are all inherently more affordable uh, than one zone on a plot of land, one home on a plot of land. And so how could we enable more homes in the 200,000s, the 300,000s to be built and sold or put for rent? Uh, rather than uh, just the inventory we have. Again, people want six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars homes and can afford them. God bless them. They'll be there. But let's also create more inventory that's less expensive. What changes in the next session to make it possible this time? Well, I think Coloradans are just more frustrated now about the high cost of housing. I think the fact that interest rates have increased so much and mortgage rates since the last discussion. So you feel you have a greater bully pulpit because of the populace? Well, yeah, it's it's not uh, so much my bully pulpit. It's I mean, this is what everywhere I go, this is what people want to ha to happen. I mean, this is I mean, you know, it's not just Denver metro area. This is in in Pueblo, in Colorado Springs, in Grand Junction, housing, housing, housing costs. I mean, this is like number one, number two, number three out of everybody's mouth. It was an important issue. You know, uh, what is it, a year, a year and a half ago when we started to talk about it? And obviously, Colorado would certainly be in a better place if we had taken action then because some of the new, more affordable homes could have been built by now. But uh, we obviously need to make progress as a state. And I've, as I laid this out before, progress is inevitable. It's just a question of will you let Colorado get as bad as California before you take action? Because now California's taking some of these steps. Now, they have cities with million-dollar home prices, and now they're finally allowing more, you know, multifamily and accessory dwelling units. It's 15 years too late for California. So Colorado can do nothing, uh, despite our best efforts, and they're going to do these reforms anyway in eight or nine years. But then, yes, the average home price will be a million dollars by then. Or we can get a little bit ahead of the curve and grow in a way that reduces traffic, has cleaner air, more affordable options to live near where jobs are, less commuting time, and more water efficiency. Uh, and I vote for that. I think most of the people in Colorado do too. You are vice chairman of the National Governors Association, which has a new campaign called Disagree Better. I'll read the description. Americans need to disagree better. And by that, we don't mean that we need to be nicer to each other, although that's helpful. We need to learn to disagree in a way that allows us to find solutions and solve problems instead of endlessly bickering. And you did a little video with Republican Governor Spencer Cox of Utah called Saving Your Family Dinner. The two of you have an exchange setting this up with the quote MAGA uncle and the quote woke niece spouting stuff from social media. And then you and Governor Cox sum it up this way. Our nation was founded by people who profoundly disagreed. So next time your uncle, your niece, or anyone else brings up that one topic that just drives you nuts, take a deep breath. Be curious, ask questions, 
If you still disagree, that's okay. But you might find that you aren't as far apart as you think. Governor, where this breaks down for me is when the disagreement is over something like the big lie or whether climate change is human-caused or the existence of trans people. So I'm curious how you, Jared Polis, bring those listening skills to bear in arenas on issues like that. We have a very diverse state in Colorado, and I'm, but I mean diverse in its political culture. Um, look at our congressional delegation, you know, ranging from Representative Lauren Boebert to Diana DeGette here in Denver to my representative, Joe Nagoose, and others. Uh, and we have Coloradans of all persuasions. And yes, everything that you just indicated in that question, we have Coloradans who believe those things. We have Coloradans that don't. We have Coloradans that look at facts. We have Coloradans that don't. We have Coloradans that choose their own facts. So what we, we talked about, and we are talking about with the National Governors Association, and Spencer Cox is going to be joining us, by the way, in November, is really equipping people with the the tactics and, and, and best knowledge from communication science about how to engage with and and have real conversations with others with whom you you disagree. It's about can you, can you give me an sure. example? Yeah, first, I want a tool. Give me a tool. I have uh, I have ten of them here in front of me. Okay, Let me go through three or one. four. How about three or four? <laughs> so it's about connecting before getting to the content of the disagreement. You know, establish a relationship of trust. Right. So what is that you have in common uh, on that value level? You know what? I, I firmly believe that that very conservative families still love their children just as I love my children. So let's try to get get to that point where you have that. Uh, connection um, and, and give face, right? And disagreements can become toxic if they're just status battles. If you're hiding behind a screen name online, and you've all seen that, you know, get oh, give it, face means don't be anonymous. Get in the same room and have the discussion. It's a lot harder to dehumanize somebody that you're talking to than it is just a name on a computer screen that uh, people often dehumanize as a person. Okay, one more. One more. Um, and this is important, and it's hard, but only get mad on purpose. Um, no amount of theorizing can prepare us for the emotional experience of disagreement, and sometimes your worst adversary is yourself. So, you know, there can be times when anger can be legitimate, but never let your emotions overwhelm your communications and desire just because, for instance, you have an uncle who's MAGA, um, you know, again, maybe you love him, maybe you have a lot of experiences in common, and try to build off of those rather than just start with, do you believe in the big lie? Governor, thank you. I hope those help. Governor Jared Polis speaking with me at the state capitol Tuesday. Read the interview online at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues shortly with filmmaker Ken Burns. He's telling the story of the American buffalo. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. I'm Jenna McMurtry. As a news intern for CPR this summer, I covered health, education, and justice across Colorado. You also heard me on NPR a few times. CPR offers opportunities like these and more to current students and recent graduates to set up the next generation for success. Learn more about our internships and fellowships at cpr.org jobs. Buffalo used to roam the U.S. in the tens of millions, including on Colorado's plains. The animals were and are deeply rooted in the spiritual and cultural lives of Native Americans. When you look at a buffalo, you just don't see a big shaggy beast. You see life. You see existence. 
you see hope. Those are our relatives. They are part of us. Gerard Baker, a member of the Mandan Hidatsa tribal group in North Dakota, speaking in a new film Ken Burns produced. It's called The American Buffalo, and it's on PBS. The documentary also explores the near extinction of these animals as white people came west. And it offers some hope for the restoration of America's mammal. The series airs October 16th and 17th on PBS stations. And Ken Burns, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Why tell this story now? Well, there's no now when it takes you several years to make a film. In fact, we've been thinking about this for more than three decades. In fact, we unearthed a proposal recently from the mid-90s, a very well-developed proposal about exactly this, that we would do a biography of an animal, the biography specifically of the buffalo that I would suggest is as much, if not more, of a symbol of the United States as the bald eagle. It's more intertwined with our very complicated and sometimes contentious and sometimes inspiring uh, history, which is sort of our beat I'm glad that we waited this long to do it because the scholars, both Native American and others that populate the film, there's new scholarship. I hope we're better filmmakers. And it gave us an opportunity to sort of center Native American views. That is to say, the people who have 600 generations of experience with this animal, as the scholar and Native American Salish Kootenai, Jermaine White says in our film, and those of us who maybe at best have six generations. It strikes me that the key visual to convey this story is not possible to convey now. And that's when the American landscape had millions of buffalo. That's right. Describe what that looks like, at least in your head. Okay, so let's look at the silent, essentially monoculture of the Great Plains right now. It's one plant, one crop. There's an a silence because of the absence of all of the animals. This was the American Serengeti. This was filled with perhaps 60 or 70 million bison. Sea to shining sea. It isn't just a Western phenomenon. Mm. American and other encroachments sort of shrink it so that by the time we get to the beginning of the 19th century, 1800, Lewis and Clark beginning their expedition, you've got probably no way of knowing 35 million buffalo but they've by their presence on the plains they've created these buffalo wallows when they rub in it and they create little pools and in those disturbed spaces new flora come it invites this diversity this kind of eden of animals coinciding with them native peoples dozens and dozens and dozens of cultures each distinct in many ways, linguistically, culturally, spiritually, one from another, the way a, a Englishman might be different than a German woman or a French woman might be different from an Englishman. That is really important to understand. We tend to make Native Americans a single one thing. And we now sort of feel that our documentary, it's two parts, or the first two parts of a three-act play. Don't want to give away the ending, but the buffalo are saved. They're not going ex- <laughs> The question is, are they going to be wild and free or are they going to be a zoo experience? Are you going to see them behind a corral in a limited space, even in a, in a range or a refuge? Or do you create, have the will and the power to create in this relatively depopulated Great Plains ecosystems, corridors, habitats that are big enough to allow, in the song, 
the buffalo to roam and the deer and the antelope to play. You really make it seem like the buffalo are a keystone species. And it strikes me that their near extinction really transformed the landscape. It did. It did. I mean, I, I think that that silence, I think that that monoculture that's there now has to do with the absence of this keystone species, this charismatic fauna, as biologists also call them. And let's lay this out on the table. The slaughter of the buffalo and the related slaughter of elk and grizzlies and wolves and coyote represents the greatest killing of wildlife in the history of the world. That's on us. We did it. So as much as the film is a positive parable of de-extinction, what that means is that you have to make an accounting of how much has happened on this continent. We're responsible for the Dust Bowl as a man-made phenomenon. That was the greatest ecological catastrophe in the history of humankind until global warming. I want to speak to what strikes me as a parallel, which is that white people come west the bison, the buffalo are on the verge of extinction and manifest destiny also envisions the elimination of indigenous identity and culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk about how those are interrelated. So manifest destiny sort of gets its name in the early decades. I think it, it's a guy named O'Sullivan who in the 1840s says, you know, that that it is our destiny to o'erspread the continent for our yearly multiplying millions. It does not take into account what is there ecologically and what is there culturally in, in terms of human lives. And it is just a big steamroller of things. We, we you know, we're redeeming property from wilderness. We think that's a positive thing mm. to cut down trees, to dam rivers, to to mine things, to essentially say to native people and to the fauna that's there, get out of our way. Another way to understand that is there's always a marketplace and there have been for centuries for native peoples, for th millennia, trading among themselves and then with newcomers and so there's some pressures on the buffalo. But when it becomes commodified, when after the Civil War, we discover that the buffalo's leather is particularly supple to drive the belts of the machines of the Industrial Revolution, the killing on the Great Plains becomes in and of itself industrial. And tens of millions of buffalo are killed within a relatively short time. And I think we have to understand this, not just in the context of the story of the species, but in a context of the people who for 12,000 years, 600 generations, have a relationship with this animal. They use every part of it sustainably from the tail to the snout. And even as Gerard Baker says, the person you quoted from the film, you know, their snort, you know, their sounds are in their rituals. This is a being in which they are so tied up with. It's part of their religious and spiritual practice. The buffalo for many people, say the Kiowa on the, who moved and migrated but ended up on the Southern Plain, it's the origin story. It's their creation story. So let's just, you know, as TV does, let's just pretend that all of a sudden, all of our churches and temples and synagogues are taken away along with all of our commissaries, all of our supermarkets, all of our grocery stores. Can we imagine for one second to place ourselves into that extraordinary trauma. Lives will be lost. 
people will starve to death and we will be separated from the thing that often gives meaning to our lives. And for dozens and dozens of Native people, this is exactly what happened. Before we talk about the animal's restoration, I have to ask you about language because we, you, in this interview, have used bison and buffalo. Yeah. Uh, okay. Sometimes when I have said buffalo about bison, we get letters. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, so let me end this. Um, <laughs> the species is not technically a buffalo. It's what we call it, right? You know, nobody's going to stop and change uh, William F. Cody's nickname to Bison Bill. <laughs> the, species, the species is called Bison Bison. And we can use them interchangeably. The second largest city in uh, New York State will not change its name to Bison New York. I promise you this. Nor will their professional football team change their name to the Bison Bills. This is a name that's just accepted. It helps for filmmakers who have to write and not want to just say they and Buffalo or they and Bison or whatever. The linguistic stuff is not to get tied up in. You can use them interchangeably, bison and buffalo. The story takes a bit of a hopeful turn. A wildlife conservation movement uh, indeed takes hold, inspired partly by the majesty of the buffalo and a sense of loss as it disappears. And one of the key players there is William T. Hornaday. Yeah. Tell us just briefly about him. William T. Hornaday is one who correctly identifies that when an animal gets commodified, its days are numbered. Mm. So the buffalo gets commodified early on just for blankets. And, you know, and then when the hides become big business, leather is the fifth largest business. The industrial revolution is booming. These belts turn the machines. That's a big deal. But as um, Jermaine White, a Salish Kootenai in our film, a scholar says, this is also a twofer because if you kill the buffalo, you also kill the Native Americans. And there is not a written United States policy, but it is articulated by everybody about this. Theodore Roosevelt, before he's president, says, yeah, it's kind of sad that it looks like it's going to be inevitable that we're going to lose the buffalo, but it's key to our handling of the Indian problem and the advancement of white civilization, period. So we know we're taking away their churches and their commissaries. We know that. So William T. Harnaday is the chief taxidermist for the Smithsonian Institution. He's out there. He can't find buffalo to kill. Finally, he does. He stuffs them. He makes this great exhibit of them. It's really watched. He also takes a little red dog and brings it back, a calf, brings it back to the Smithsonian's lawn. And it's a big tourist attraction, dies. And then he realizes, you know, I'm really in the wrong business. We should be saving this species, not killing them and stuffing them. He thought up to that point that the apotheosis of an animal's existence was to be killed and stuffed, whether it was a Bengal tiger or an elephant or a giraffe or the American buffalo. No. So he's instrumental in creating the National Zoo in Rock Creek Park, and he's later instrumental in creating the Bronx Zoo, which will play an unbelievable gobsmocking role in the whole restoration story. He's also a white supremacist like TR. At least TR moves. It doesn't look like Hornaday moves. He moves saying, no more stuffing, or I don't want to stuff anymore. I want to save. TR, their, TR being Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt being their um, 
essentially the noblesse oblige, the white man's burden. This is why we're doing. And a lot of people save the buffalo for the wrong reasons. It mm. becomes symbols of nationalism. Hornaday's a racist and he hates Indians. And it's it's part of the story. And everybody moves in some direction. Some people a lot farther, Charlie Goodnight and the Texas Panhandle and Quanta Parker, the Comanche leader, all make a much longer journey. Buffalo Bill himself goes from bragging about killing 4,000 plus buffalo, which gives him his nickname for the railroad crews to saving them because he's making lots of money putting on his wild less show and he needs it. And other people save the buffalo for odd reasons. But you find in the conservation movement and in the restoration of the buffalo, a lot of people who subscribe to eugenics. That's the pseudoscience that suggests completely fraudulently without any scientific evidence that there is a hierarchy of races, of ethnicities, and even nationalities, which is total bunk. There's so much Ken Burns that we'll have to leave for the series, but uh, really there are efforts to bring back bison on so many different fronts. Tribes working on this, NGOs, non-governmental organizations working on this, governments working on this, private holders of these animals working on this. We go from tens of millions Back yes. in the day, before Manifest Destiny, to I think by your count in the film, about 350,000 now? Yeah, it's probably grown since we, you know, we put that number in. I'm happy to say uh, at least 20,000 are in federal hands. More than 20,000 are in Native American hands. There are many herds that these NGOs like American Prairie have. And most are in private hands and in private ranches, some in feedlots. Yeah. And it's okay. You know, I just want to say if you're a meat eater, it's okay to eat buffalo. Whatever buffalo you're eating is being sustainably raised. But that number seems like nothing. I can't do the math for you. But if there were 70 million and there may be 400,000 now or 380 or 375,000, that's just a drop in the bucket. To me, I'm less worried about numbers than I am in habitat. Mm. I'd sacrifice the need to say we should have millions and millions of buffalo. How great would that be? I'd rather have a habitat where you can go and see, like the Serengeti, like in Kenya, like in Tanzania, in places where you can see you know, I give me a home where the buffalo roam and the deer and the antelope play. Ken Burns, thank you so much. Thank you. His new series, The American Buffalo, premieres Monday and Tuesday on PBS. There's also a new Colorado-made documentary about local bison conservation, and you can tune in Friday to Colorado Matters for that discussion. This is CPR News and KRCC. One challenge for Casa Bonita's new chef, the sopapillas. The old recipe was incomplete, so Donna Rodriguez had to reverse engineer it with her staff. I bring all of them and I say, okay, I'm testing these recipes because I want to make sure it's the same one. So we try it and they're like, no, it's too chewy, no, it's too hard, no, it's not the flavor. And then we're like, yep, those are the ones. A culinary tour of Casa Bonita at Denverite.com.
So many things can interfere with breastfeeding, medical issues, social stigma. In Grand Junction, there's a unique support group, and CPR's Stina Sieg paid a visit. It's one of the sweetest sounds I know. A baby, nursing. Of course, I'm biased, because this baby is my baby, Ellie. We're sitting in the grass, in the shade of big trees at Lincoln Park. Around us, a little city of strollers, picnic blankets, and diaper bags. And maybe a dozen or so other babies latched on to their moms. McLeese Stevens is holding her six-month-old son, Chiago. Like, how many times do do you see women sitting around just exposed breasts out feeding children? You know, you don't see that very much in our culture, sadly. But that's every Tuesday at Community Hospital's Breastfeeding Support Group. Veronica Felix is here with her nine-month-old, Juliet. It just feels like a community that was there when I felt really alone and overwhelmed. When her daughter was only a few months old, and Felix was learning to be more successful with breastfeeding than she had been with her first child. In those foggy, early postpartum days, this group was therapy. Like, we're all going through the same thing, and it's, it's tough, but it's also amazing. Nursing is humbling, says first-time mom Lacey Talby, holding her four-month-old little girl, Rowan. It's not just latch your baby and you're going to breastfeed. It's all going to be great. It's, no, there's a lot of steps to it. There's a lot of complications that could come from it, and it's not easy. And if she didn't come here... Talby says she wouldn't have anyone else to talk to about it. But this group is a kind of instant community. That's how McLeese Stevens describes it. I'm new to the area, so it's been really good to just see other moms. (laughs) (laughs) Good Good going. Baby Chi, her kid's nickname, looks relieved. A big smile between his big ears, giant blue eyes. When Stevens first arrived this morning, she weighed baby Chi on a provided scale. Now, after breastfeeding him, she lies him down on the scale again. Ready? Here we go. At first, she frowns. Oh yeah, a sad 0.3 ounces. But then, one of the group's founders steps in. 3.4. Oh, really? 3.4. Oh, 3.4 ounces. Yes. Okay. Well, that's better than I thought meaning baby Chi drank 3.4 ounces, right on track. That comforting background voice belongs to Dory Malone, who started this group with a fellow nurse at Community Hospital, Allie Reynolds, in 2019. They're both international board-certified lactation consultants, trained to help with all kinds of lactation issues. Babies who have a hard time latching, mothers who worry they aren't producing enough milk, Some moms come to our support group and they're saying, you know, my family's pushing formula, I have to cover up, I have to go into another room when I'm breastfeeding. At this group, and also in the maternity wing, Malone wants to show moms that breastfeeding is possible, even if other women in their families didn't nurse their babies. And I hear this all the time. Uh, in the hospital, when I'm helping at the bedside, the grandparents, the, mo- the, the grandmothers are saying, wow, I never had this when I had my baby. And I know that was my situation. 
Malone, who has three adult children, including twins, knows how lonely parenting can feel. She had her first baby in Germany and was later raising her small kids in Colorado Springs while her husband was stationed overseas. She likens young motherhood to the intensity of college finals. That's a week. This is forever. <laughs> this, this goes on and on and on, and it is daunting. It is, you know, you've got the hormones from your pregnancy. They're balancing out. You've got sleep deprivation going on. And, yeah, it's very emotional. A single mom named Molly, who just wants to use her first name, says it's especially hard with your first baby. Going from not having anybody need you and you're just doing whatever you want all the time, like living your life, to all of a sudden like having another human that is attached to you and needs that closeness, it can be really difficult to adjust to that. And Molly says it really does take a village. And the village is not there. You have to go look for it, and you shouldn't have to go look for it. It should be more readily available to you, I think. Because of this village, she was able to get through her breastfeeding challenges. Molly's proud to say she's never used any formula with her now 14-month-old. Not a single bottle. But everyone's breastfeeding journey looks different. Some mothers here supplement with formula, including me, and some use it exclusively. Some want to breastfeed for years, others for months. And a big part of this group is letting moms know it is all okay. As Veronica Felix puts it, It's all beautiful. It's all parenting and motherhood. And here, it feels like you're not navigating it alone. That keeps Lacey Talby coming back week after week. You come here vulnerable, and other women are like, oh, I understand you. And to be understood, it makes things a lot better. A place for nourishment for both babies and moms. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And Community Hospital's breastfeeding support group has expanded with a presence now in Delta and online. Before we go, it's National Coming Out Day, which began in 1988, one year after the National March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights. To some extent, every day is Coming Out Day for LGBTQ people. We face the question all the time, whom to share our authentic selves with. Well, on Saturday, in honor of National Coming Out Day, I'll share some of my authentic self on a stage in Boulder. It's for a series called Mortified, in which people read from their adolescent diaries. Mine were coded to hide being gay, and I'll decipher them Saturday evening at the Dairy Arts Center. There are still some tickets at getmortified.com. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with very special thanks to Michelle P. Fulcher. I'm Ryan Warner. You're at CPR News and KRCC.